Brilliant. Just to let you know a couple of quick things for the church. The baptism is coming up, and uh, so if that's the step you know you need to take, I'd invite you to come and just let us know, myself or any of the team, um, someone you might know, and I'll pass the message on, but we'd love to encourage you. If you know that's the next important thing that you need to participate in, we'd love to talk to you about that. So also just encourage you, Tuesday night's our prayer meeting this through this month of February. We're just praying, believing specifically for areas that you want to just see uh, something change, shift, breakthrough, whatever you'd like to call it. But uh, I invite you to come 7 to 8 on Tuesday night, 7 to 8 o'clock. And mind you, we're always praying every Tuesday night of the year, except for probably a couple of weeks over Christmas. So that's happening. So today, uh, we just want to get into it. We continue because we're just looking at um, uh, Revelations. is a book that uh, is not often sometimes totally understood of what it says because it does talk in metaphors. And sometimes it's a little difficult. And so we're tackling it, but just the first three chapters. Uh, um, and today, uh, as way of introduction, uh, some time ago, actually five, about five or so years ago, our church put in a development application to the Gladstone City Council uh, because we wanted to renovate this building here and extend it. And what you see today is a result of that. And so we did that and the council um, approved that. But in the meanwhile, I didn't know this, but our local newspaper would regularly check up with the city council about any new building developments in our city. And if it was newsworthy, they wanted to write an article on it and they found our, our situation was newsworthy. So a reporter rang me up and asked if he could interview and so that he could uh, report and do an article on our church uh, building. I um, innocently said yes. <laughs> he came, we had a good chat for 20 minutes, he went and they wrote a half-page article in the Gladstone uh, local paper uh, and it, generally it was favourable, quite favourable, uh, a couple tongue-in-cheek uh, tongue kind of comments but otherwise it was great and that was the end of it. But it wasn't uh, because they, uh, they actually then, uh, which I didn't know they did this, but on their local paper Facebook page, they put a question up there that they wanted people to discuss and debate. And the question went like this, should a church using money, use money to extend their building with so much need in the world? So it was, a, it was a question, it was kind of like that, don't quote me exactly, but it was a question that they wanted to create some interest and, uh, of course, ultimately interest in the paper. <laughs> you know, and I appreciate that's what the media are about, and I respect that. Uh, but uh, they got to work and live and and uh, have an income, haven't they? So the discussion it didn't really generate much discussion, except for one man did put a comment in, and uh, his comment was this: he had a filter. Obviously, he was filtered. He obviously saw the church through a certain filter, and so what he did was he described our church as a place that was generally only interested in ripping people off and using money to build bigger buildings and not just another, and just another indication of wasteful money use because who wants to really go to church anyway? <laughs> well, you guys do, yeah, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Uh, and, and, and that's what the, and the, our wonderful 830 group of people said, kind of said as well. And plus all the other wonderful people and other churches in our city. So we decided how we were going to respond and uh, we did absolutely nothing. Because <laughs> that's the best way to respond to social media. Can I give you just a hint? If someone wants to slander someone on social media, you know the best way to stop it? It's just don't say anything. Anyway, cool. So uh, in actual fact, someone else from another church made a comment and, and uplifted us. And uh, it fizzled out within 48 hours. Praise God for that. But it brings to my attention the reality of what the world does think of the church, the Christian church of today. And there can be varying views and thoughts about the Christian church. Some people love the church of Jesus Christ. Some people have a filter that is fairly painful in their, in their experience of the church, and so they don't like it, or they don't want to be a part of it. Others are indifferent, whatever the case. But you know, out of all that, I, I, I think a great question would be, what does Jesus think of the church? What does Jesus think of the church? Uh, because you know, when you think about it, he, he actually had a bit to say about the church. And in these first three chapters of Revelation, he has a lot to say, because we see Jesus makes comment and gives a narrative of discussion, of, well, maybe not discussion, but a narrative that John, uh, the disciple of Jesus, wrote down 
And we see that Jesus addresses seven churches in then what was called Asian Minor, modern-day Turkey. Unfortunately, where that earthquake, not very far from where that earthquake has just unfolded in these last um, several days, um, tragically. But we see seven prominent churches there. And, uh, um, and uh, so we see this, uh, Jesus makes comment about it. And Jesus is not saying the church is perfect because he commends them, but he also corrects them. Um, and we all understand that we're sitting in an imperfect church. You know why? Well, number one, I'm here. <laughs> I'm imperfect. What about you? <laughs> yeah. But I'm not going to focus on that, but I'm just saying that uh, the reality of humanity is here. But you know what? That's why the church is here. Because we come together and He established His church for us, whether we're healthy or whole or a little bit broken or a lot broken or whatever, he, he knows it's his best plan and purpose. And so uh, my question is, uh, you know, let's not go to, to some media, media outlet for answers of what the church is like. Why don't we just ask Jesus? And that's what we want to continue to do over the next uh, several weeks as we look at the first three books. And Jesus writes, uh, John, sorry, writes as was transcribed by, by Jesus um, in this vision because John, of course, the disciple, the last remaining disciple of Jesus out of the 12, was exiled to a little island about 40 kilometers off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And, uh, and there he had nowhere to live. And tradition, not the Bible, but tradition says he lived in a cave for quite a while. And there, in a time of worshiping God, uh, praise God that we can worship him anywhere. It doesn't have to be just a church. Uh, in a cave on the island of Patmos, uh, he started to worship God, and as he did, Jesus shows up in a, a vision and gives him a revelation uh, of, of of the reality of what uh, of Jesus Himself, but also what Jesus spoke to him about the seven churches that were in this particular area of the world, called Asian Minor at the time. And these seven churches were seven real communities, real people, real uh, real. Uh, struggles that they had, real things they had to face. And I love it because Jesus, what Jesus had to say is not only a wonderful insight into people's lives back then, which is literally uh, the end of the first century, 95 AD, when, the, when this book was written, but literally it is a reference point for ourselves as well because what it says to us is incredibly encouraging and beneficial on how we live our Christian faith and reality is what we think of Jesus. And it will encourage us, it will challenge us, but we'll look at it. So with that said, can I read uh, chapter 2 of Revelation, verses starting in verse 1. And the first church we want to look at is a church called Ephesus. Ephesus is still there today. Um, it's on the coast of um, Turkey, uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. And it says in verse 1, this is what Jesus spoke. Uh, I know that because it's in my Bible in red which is always a good thing. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things. And he says, Who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of his seven golden lampstands? I know your works, your labor, your patience, uh, that you cannot bear those that are, who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your what? First love there it is you've left your first love remember therefore from which you've fallen repent and do the first works or else i will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place please lampstand means the church so whenever you see it in the first three chapters of revelation the word lampstand it means the church it's a metaphor for the church because let's think about it isn't the church supposed to be a light on a hill yeah come come on you got it unless you it says i'll remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent but this you have, that you hate, uh, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Not Nickelodeons. That's a that's a um, cartoon uh, channel. Um, I did say that in the first service. <laughs> anyway, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Wow! When you read that. Look, I would not blame you for asking the question, what is that about? What in the world is that about? Because it's got metaphoric thoughts 
and you're trying to work out what do these things mean. Well, let's start by mentioning just the city itself. Just for a moment, quick moment, Ephesus. What's Ephesus about? It's a premier city. It's a major city in the group of, group of cities in that area, seven cities within probably 200 kilometers of each other. Uh, it's a coastal city, um, and people would come and go from this city. It was a place of commerce and trade, and so a lot of, uh, a lot of wealth within the city as well. Um, and besides all that, there was a lot of uh, worship in this city, but it wasn't what we think. It's not the God creator of heaven and earth. It was a lot of worship of uh, made-up gods uh, that they made statues and images of and established in this city. There was about 50 of them. They had so many gods. I mean, they had a god for everything. Well, probably not everything, over-exaggeration, but a lot of things. You know, god of sun, god of water, god of cup of tea. I wouldn't have a clue. It's all happening. But they had one god, um, and the god that the one god that was over all of them was called uh, the god called Artemis. Okay, a female god over all the other gods. So one up for the ladies here, the, and she was the mother of all the gods. And if you worshipped um, uh, Artemis, uh, the truth is you kind of got um, if you put her first in your life, you kind of got all the others well. As, as long as you appeased her, all the others got appeased as well. So she was so prominent that they built a temple in Ephesus to her. It was an incredibly large temple. It was uh, actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this temple. You can still see some of the structure there in Ephesus. I think it's not completely there in one place. Obviously, earthquakes have had its toll. But it's three times, if you've ever been to Athens and seen the incredible temple of the Pathathon in, in Athens, it's amazingly big. It's about 250 meters long, 100 meters wide. I had the opportunity to walk amongst it, walk there. But this one's three times that size. So this is massive. This is a massive. This is, this is like 800 meters long. Incredible temple. So the sad thing about this temple was, it was a temple that was also had, um, it was uh, totally involved in prostitution. So you could go there, you could worship your God, be involved with uh, prostitution, and you could walk away feeling like you've done your thing. <laughs> wow. So um, Ephesus was not necessarily a great place to raise a family. It was a place... And it wasn't a great place for Christmas businessmen either because whatever you'd done business, uh, it was also, you know, you had to work with other businesses that was, and the, the truth is, is entwined with prostitution. And so it was an easy thing uh, to do there. So not an easy place to live out your Christian faith. But I want to say this, despite all that was immoral and corrupt about this city, the church of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus prevailed and the reason that we know it prevailed because we have an actual accounts back in an earlier book in the New Testament called Acts chapter 19 that talks about some of the things that happened in Ephesus because one day Paul went to Ephesus and he stayed there for two years preaching five days a week, probably had the weekends off, every day would talk about Jesus and people were so interested they were flocked there. That's why he continued for two years. In actual fact, Paul kind of like set up, I suppose, this Bible college in Ephesus. And out of that, um, out of this immoral and corrupt uh, community, um, you know, city, it came many good things in the midst of this church. It grew and it strengthened. People went, to, went on and became missionaries from this city. So interesting, isn't it? This happened. And so you can start to see what the church was like in Ephesus. In fact, the Bible says also in chapter 19 of Acts, that book, Acts of the Apostles, uh, that was it, the, the Christians were such a strong witness that there was also sorcery and witchcraft in this city. And they made all their little images and all their witchcraft items. In actual fact, many of these people who practiced those sorcery came to the Lord Jesus Christ, became believers in Jesus, became Christians, and closed their businesses down. And so much so that it says at Acts 19 uh, that they actually had a bonfire one night and equivalent, because it says it in the Bible, I think three or four hundred pieces of silver, all these artifacts and all these books and all these sorcery items, they burnt them in a bonfire. It was equivalent to about six million Australian dollars. So you've got to appreciate something was happening in Ephesus as as immoral as it was, there was a rising tide of the presence of God in that city because of the church of the living God over prevailed and conquered. It was incredible. Wonderful things were happening. It impacted this city. So 
that's the church that John's writing about. And I, want, I wanted to lay that foundation so you get a little bit of understanding, a backstory. Because now we see Jesus starts to commend the church. And he commends this church for a couple main reasons. And I want to just share them with you. The first was, he says, uh, he says, your labor and your works are being noted. In other words, what was happening is they serve, they serve week after week for the kingdom of God. Whether that was in the church or maybe out in the community, loving people, helping people, caring for people. They were devoted to the cause. They had rolled their sleeves up and they were laboring and serving to see the missions, mission of God go forward and see, the, impacted, see um, the city impacted for God. And so Jesus sees that and he commends them. He says, come on, guys, you're doing a great job. Your service is exquisite. Your commitment to serve is wonderful. And I want to say uh, thank you to so many people in the life of our church that serve in some capacity for the kingdom of God. And I want to say that, you know, you might say, well, what do I, I just on the front door. I want to say that, you know, that's one of the most incredible, important jobs here. Because there's no better thing to see a smile on that front door when you turn up to a church for the first time. Come on. And you need a... So there's all different roles. I, I, you know, thank you. Thank you for what you do. That's so important. Mind you, we still have room for more. There's always jobs to be done. And as the church continues to grow, we just need you know, more people, more teachers for children's church, more everything. So um, anyway, that's just a little plug right there. Yeah, take, take that. But I want to say that there was, you know, in Jesus' day and in the disciples' day, there was a movement against this type of thought. Because there was, and they didn't know it at the time, and they didn't realize, but there was a pious group of people called the Pharisees. And you know what? It says in Matthew 23, 5, that what they would do is they would make sure that any good thing that they did was not only, was seen, not just by, um, not, not just seen by their friends, but by everybody. They wanted to make sure that they were seen by other people, because other people's opinions were more important, ultimately, they wouldn't say this, but they were more important than God's opinion. And you know, I think we've got to be careful of that, hey, that why we serve, uh, why do we do it, is it to, uh, and, and, and I'm thankful for the people that say to each other, well, well done, I, I'm, I'm all into encouragement and affirmation, but ultimately, we've got to realize our reward is not going to be just here on this earth, it's going to be in heaven one day, isn't it? And he says, I commend that, and you know, you might be here today and say, well, no one ever recognizes me. Don't worry, the most important person in the world recognizes you, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. And I think that sometimes, you know, we, we can be thankful for the people who say thanks to us, but ultimately, uh, we can say, actually, I don't really need it because Jesus sees my works, and that's really good. He's, he's seen it. He's got it. And so, we see that this church was commended for its good works its service, its commitment. The second thing that Jesus commends in this church is its endurance, its willingness to bear up under cultural pressure of an immoral society. It's willing to say, well, actually, no, I'm not going to involve myself in that. I'm not going to do that. It's not that I don't want to help you. It's not that I don't want to support you. It's not that I don't want to live in this community. It's just that I'm not going to let myself be involved like what you're suggesting. And so if you were a, 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 an Ephesian, if you lived in Ephesus and you got up in the morning and you jumped on your donkey or you maybe walked to work, what you would see along the streets is temples, statues, images to other gods, um, a whole lot of pagan imagery and a whole lot of pagan practices, a whole lot of pagan businesses. You would have seen businesses making little images and statues to be sold. And so all this type of stuff. And the Christians of the day didn't engage in that, didn't buy from those shops, didn't involve them. And, and consequently, they were seen as antisocial and uh, just not wanting to fit in with the community. But you know what? The Christians, but um, Jesus actually commends them for that. It's not like, you know, we need to go about saying, well, um, you know, not talking to people, not caring for people, not loving people, whoever, whether Christian or non-Christian. No, it's not that at all. It's just the fact that we're going to say, you know what, I'm not, gonna, I, I'm not going to allow my heart 
to be pulled away from what I know is true. I'm going to stand up for truth and I'm going to live that. Uh, And that's what was being commended here uh, by ultimately Jesus as John wrote it down. He encourages, John encourages, don't compromise, keep on bearing up, continue to take a stand where what you're doing. And maybe today you can relate to that in your workplace and there can be pressures to conform, uh, there can be pressures uh, to become uh, engaged in stuff, maybe in the lunchrooms for those of us who work in places with multiple number of people, you know, the, the lunchroom gossip, you just, you know, you say, no, I don't want to be conformed to that. Or maybe the, or the lunchroom rude jokes that happen uh, for some of us guys when you, when you work in industry and, and you just kind of, you don't laugh at their jokes and everybody looks at you and you feel a little ostracized. But, um, you know, I, I want to encourage us today. It's not lost on God. It's not lost on God. And you don't have to water down your witness to get along with everyone in the world, Okay. It's not that you can't try. It's not that we have to walk around with a glum. I think we should have a smile on our face and a joy in our heart. Hey, and, uh, support, love, care, talk to people. But the reality is, is we don't have to bow just to get along with someone. I used to have a gentleman, I think I mentioned it some weeks ago, he'd come up to me and he'd tell me, he'd come up to my face and he'd tell me a rude, he knew I was a Christian. And when I worked at the power station and he'd tell me a rude joke and, uh, and, uh, and he'd laugh his head off and i think, far out, is that what really get you laughing (laughs) and I used to walk away with a smile and that used to rev him up a little bit you know because I didn't respond how he wanted me he wanted me to get actually back at him and all that say the types of things I never did and upset him so we don't need to change our message to fit in with the society do we Uh, if there's if there's no point of difference for the church if there's no point of difference between us and the culture of the world what are we going to bring people into? More of what they've got? They don't want that. Honestly, people, when they're searching for answers, they don't want more of what they've got. They want something that's a point of difference. And the Church of the Living God can have a point of difference, just like this church in Ephesus. They influence the culture. I was sitting in the lunchroom at the power station one day. Look, I'm no great evangelist, but I, I used to try. And, I, and Once a week, I'd go and sit in the, in the locker room. I'd, otherwise, I'd be up with the guys having a chat and talking in the lunchroom. And I'd sit in once a week, and I'd just read my Bible. Because, you know, in the midst of that community out there, it was, it was pretty full-on sometimes times the things that are happening in a group of men and so I just sit in the lunchroom and people would see me doing that and there's one day this young man walked in he sat beside me and he says how do I come to know God and I led him to Jesus Christ and you know today he's he's uh he's married he's got a he's got a child he works in Brisbane he's going to church this is like this I'm talking now 30 years ago and he hasn't stopped serving God from that moment he came to Christ and I want to say what was he looking for more of what the lunchroom was offering no he was looking for a point of difference and we've got the answers. Now, I'm not talking about being, you know what, we don't need to become legalistic. That is a terrible way. The Pharisees done that. We just need to become more compassionate, but more standing on the truth. I used to have a guy, uh, before I got married at the power station, you know, he used to say to me, uh, just not many months before I was married, he used to say to me, you got to try before you buy. And if you don't know what I'm saying, let it pass over your head. That's okay. You, you know what I'm And I would say to him, uh, no. And he'd say, you're an idiot. And I'd, br- under my breath, I'd say, no, you're the idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we generally got on, but he used to just tease me and provoke me all the time. Every day. Every day. And you know what? His marriage finished 20 years ago. Mine's still going 37 years later. I'm not quite sure if that's, I, I don't know if that's got anything to do with it, but I think so. Anyway, uh, you know, uh, I bring it to your point that the world's looking for a point of difference. A point of difference. Okay, so that's all nice. So we see the church, we see the church was served diligently. They bared up under immoral pressure and social pressure to conform. They were not giving in, and Jesus commends them. But then he comes to the crunch point, and, and he says to them, he says, there's one problem that I have against you, okay? He says, you've abandoned the love that you had for me at first, your first love for me. So these people are dutiful, these people are fruitful, yet they've lost their sense of love for God. And that challenges me because if a good church like the Ephesus church 
who serve diligently, who are faithful, can lose their kind of first love for Jesus. That could be a possibility in my life, and I, I don't want that in my life. And so we can be busy serving, being morally upright, but neglecting that love. And so I want us to continue to, actually the church of Ephesus, it's not like they were doing drugs on a Friday night at youth. It's not like they were, you know, at midnight skipping out up to the, up to the hill on the, the, the temple of Artemis and, prostit- and being involved with the prostitute. They weren't doing that, but they'd stopped, they'd stopped showing up. They hadn't stopped showing up, they hadn't stopped serving, but they'd stopped loving. So, you know, and I was just thinking about this first love. There's something special about your first love, isn't there? I'm talking about relationships. There's something special about that first love, that lady you married or that, uh, uh, you know, that husband you married. And I remember when Michelle and I first got married, we, we, do, we just wanted to spend those time together and we'd find minutes to spend time together. I remember she was, uh, Michelle was uh, uh, working on a Monday. I had a nine-day fortnight, so I had a Monday off. And so I'd, uh, she had about 30 minutes. She says it was a bit longer for lunch, but I'd go and pick her up. And, uh, I'd, and but I'd, go, I'd get there right on the time and she'd come out a couple minutes after. And we literally, I thought only we only had about 20 minutes in the park together. Because then I'd have to take her back and make sure she's back at work uh, in time. And uh, we'd do crazy things like that. And in hindsight, it was impractical. But, you know, at the time, it was just brilliant. We got that 20 minutes to look at each other. And this is before we were married, of course, and spend time together. And so when you're first in love, you do things that wouldn't, you wouldn't normally do. And here's the thing. But uh, you can go on those, um, those feelings of love can start to cool off. Those feelings of love and things become routine and a bit familiar and and uh, and we've got to be careful and we can take maybe spouses for granted or friends for granted or relationships for granted and and Ephesus has lost its first love life routines things to do places to be um, schedules to meet had kind of ruled over all the other you know that it had become busy in this church in this life and so I asked myself, what was the revelation they needed? What was the turning point that they needed to understand so they can be this first love could be restored? And revelation they needed, as I look at the scripture in verse 1, it was right there in the introduction in verse 1. This is what it says. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This is what I read to earlier. Who walks in the, note this, who walks in the midst of the seven golden, what? Lampstands. And the lampstand means church. So, the lampstand, we see here, Jesus, they'd lost their love for Jesus, but they needed a revelation again that Jesus was right there among them. Can you see that? He was right in the midst of their church. So here's the point. If you lost your first love for Jesus, what you need is a revelation of his presence. A revelation of his presence. A, a restoring of that awe about Jesus. Some may think, well, you know what? <laughs> I'm pretty snowed on. I just need a holiday. I just need a long weekend. And you know what? That's great. If, if, if you do that, great. But I wanted you to take the time on holidays or long weekend just to restore that love relationship with Christ. Why don't you just spend time in that place of just sensing His presence, just talking to Him, that element of worship. It doesn't have to be songs. You don't need a seven-piece band and a great worship team. You just need you and Jesus to worship. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't be in church either because I think that's, that says, and we'll talk about that in the rest of the letter, that's a powerful time. But, um, but you can see just to come near, draw near to him. Think, you know, um, <laughs> you know when Michelle walked down the aisle of that incredible day on the 19th of July, 1987, uh, she came through that door because the building's been renovated. I stood over there because that's where the stage was. And, uh, and I looked behind me and I went, oh, wow. Her eyes. Uh, and you know what? She didn't have a lot of makeup on because my wife didn't, doesn't need makeup to look beautiful. Um, <laughs> her curly black hair. Her, oh, man, I just went, well, I'm going to marry that. Oh, this has got to be the best. Besides my commitment to Jesus, it's got to be the best day of my life. You know, 
But here's the problem. 20, 30, whatever number of years down the track, we can have our spouse come home and we can turn around as they come through the door and go, ah, it's you. And that's the problem that we see with the church at Ephesus. It's not like they were not obedient, not serving, not not, not faithful. It's that they lost the edge of how important Jesus was in their life. Do you know what I'm saying this morning? The key to reigning, uh, reigniting a love relationship with Jesus, believe right. You know, you can be believing right and enduring right, but lose your love in the process. So what does it mean to love Jesus? How about we just look at that for a moment? What does it mean to love Christ? And I want to say this. Number one, Jesus wants our affection. And and your first love is marked by feelings, strong affections with with your spouse. It's always marked by strong affections. There's a sense. I'm not saying you go on feelings all the time uh, because feelings come and go. Infatuation comes in, you know, usually comes and then it never comes back but um infatuation but you know that commitment and that true awe sometimes you know sometimes look I'll be honest because of those moments and because I married my wife who I I just adored and loved I, I still have those moments I look at her and go wow come on you're saying, oh, you're so perfect. No, I'm not. You haven't seen Michelle and I. We, can, we, we haven't got it. But I'm just saying that when you lay a foundation, it can be so wonderful, that marriage. And it just gets better. <laughs> okay. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Okay. For, you know, and you don't. You don't just like them, you actually love them. And Jesus was asking, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, you know what he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, and what? Strength. That's all encompassing, isn't it? That's all. It's not just like, well, in my mind, I agree. In my mind, I love him, but I'm, yeah, I don't know. It's getting, uh, I'm not really feeling it, you know. But, you know, when Jesus says with your mind, soul, strength, your heart, everything, that's all encompassing. And you might say, well, you know, oh, it's easy for you to say, how do you do that? Well, I just think you've got to reignite that, that time, opportunity of just being in his presence. Just spend time. Just a moment. It can be that 10 minutes in the morning. It can be that whatever it is. But it's just, just giving him the time. Giving him that time. And if you're like me and you've been following Jesus for a little while, one of the greatest dangers is to start to see Jesus as a figure to be studied or a worldview to be, you know, to engaged in or maybe just a doctrine to be memorized instead of a person to be known. To be loved and have a relationship. And when you embrace Jesus, we, we can want to serve him and that's good. But understand as much as love embraces duty, but don't let it evaporate in duty. Don't let your love evaporate in serving. As much as the Ephesus church was good at serving, sometimes we've got to be careful that in our service, that love for Jesus can evaporate because I'm always doing it. I'm just the only one who does these things. No one helps me. And our love for Christ can grow cold. And we can't please let that happen. We can see this happen in marriage sometimes. Husbands and wives can have all the duties and all the disciplines of a good marriage. But let's not let love evaporate in the midst of all our duties. You know, Michelle and I have worked it out. She washes, uh, sorry, she cooks, I wash up. I think I got the good end of the deal. I got a dishwasher. (laughs) She always wondered when we made up that rule why I bought a dishwasher. Don't tell her. Don't let that love for each other die in the midst of the daily grind and so sometimes we can do that with God I, you know you know I read my Bible <laughs> I've done my duty I've done my Christian disciplines I prayed I prayed for my family completed my duty no 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 why don't we just come back and just let us stand in awe of him in awe of him and just and you know what it takes is just a moment that you just put aside block everything else go somewhere else go away whatever it is find a lunch room with a locker room down below or find a locker room down below and just a bit of time in his presence 
It's amazing. It's amazing if you draw near to him, how he'll just draw near to you. Here's the second thing of what Jesus wants, as if we're going to, uh, means to love Jesus. It's not only finding, refining our affection, but Jesus wants our allegiance. Have you ever noticed that about love? Love, love is, tends to be exclusive rights in the relationship. Exclusive. It's not an open marriage with the bride of Christ. Do you know what I'm saying? There's no concubines or mistresses or anything else. No, it's just one, Jesus, and we're the bride of Christ. Nothing else. Exclusive. Exclusive rights. And when we get married, we can say things like forsaking all others. Uh, We can say till death does us part. And as for as long as we both shall live. You remember those things we said, if you're married, forgive me if you're not married, just take notes this morning, you're going to be possibly. Okay. So, uh, and all of these lines, what are we doing? We're pledging our commitment to the other person. And we're going, we're saying between me, you and me, that's it. It's exclusive. And yet we see that, that when it comes to Jesus, maybe we're not exclusive. We can't allow the time. Maybe we could just have with Christ. We just, you know, you know we allow that, that thing in the lounge room that's got four sides in it. In it. What's it called? A TV? Or maybe we allow that little thing we hold in our, what's it called? Hand with a screen. Then if you check the hours that you do every day, you might be surprised how many hours you spend. What's it called? A phone. Great. Yeah, I thought it was. Oh, then, then there's this thing on the desk. It's called a desktop computer or a laptop anyway I think he got the point so Jesus seeks our uh, 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 you know and, and, and if we took that 20 minutes maybe we'd re- reignite our allegiance and our response to him you know it, Jesus has the team come where has the team come this morning it just says the last thing Jesus wants not only our allegiance. He just doesn't want our affection. Jesus, to reignite a love relationship with Christ, he, he, it also is proved in our uh, actions, our actions. And Jesus says, I know your works because love starts as an affection, okay, grows into a, 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 and into a commitment of exclusiveness and, and allegiance, but it's outworked in our actions, Outworked in our actions. We're also going to just partake of communion in a moment. So just sit there, relax. But we're going to ask the team just to take pass out communion this morning. Because I think one of the most wonderful opportunities of response to Jesus is an action to actually remember what Jesus has done for us. Because ultimately, His incredible love was reflected to us through this action that we're going to celebrate just in a moment. But Jesus asked for our actions Our love starts as an affection, grows into an exclusive commitment, but it's outworked in an action. And if I said to Michelle, I love you, I love you, Michelle, I love you, and I never lifted a finger around the house, Michelle would have every right to say, well, you could have loved me with a vacuum cleaner. (laughs) And I know that job sucks, but someone's got to do it. Our love ultimately is reflected in our actions. You know, ultimately the greatest uh, uh, reflection, greatest example of love was Jesus. Because He came and done something that no one else could do. Jesus Christ came uh, because no one else was able to do it. No one was perfect like Him. No one was uh, putting their hand up to die on a cross, but Jesus did in the end. And, and, you know, it says he, he, he loves us. It says, it says in the Word of God, it actually says this. Um, where is it? John 15, 13. It says, Greater love has no one than he lays down his life for his what? His friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Did you notice that? That the word friend is talking about this love relationship with Jesus. And we see what Jesus says. You know what? Do. If you do what I command you, I'll know that I'll see your love for me through your actions. And doing um, that flows from love is what that's all about. Doing that flows from love. Please understand, 
If you've got service without love, your service will dry up. But if you have love without service, then the love will eventually um, well up and overflow into service. I'll say that again. If you have, uh, if you have service uh, without love, your service will dry up. But if you have love of Jesus with, without service, then the love will eventually well up and overflow into service. And Jesus' love for us welled up. I mean, he, to be honest, it didn't have to because He always loved us for God so loved the world. So did you notice it says so loved the world? Jesus, God just didn't love the world. He so loved it. He so loved it. I don't know if I've responded with that kind of depth of love to Jesus, but I'm going to try. <laughs> but He came and brought Jesus. And Jesus came for humanity. And what we hold today as we come around communion can be an action of incredible love. As we remind ourselves, as we pause for just for this few moments in this week, in this month, and say, Jesus, your death for me did something that no one else could do, that I couldn't do myself, and that is that you cleansed me. Remember last week we talked about that cleansing power, the washing power of Jesus. He forgives us for our sin. He takes away the guilt, the shame, the things that want to, you know, and He keeps us clean. You know, I take that for granted sometimes because I suppose sometimes I feel so clean most of the time, but the truth is, is there's things that remind me because of the things I do wrong that I've got to come back to Him and just say, God, I blew it here. Attitudes here, thoughts there, actions there weren't good. So, And it's not a matter of coming back to Him and, and groveling to Him. It's a matter of receiving His mercy and walking on in victory, isn't it? But Jesus Christ came precisely. You know, He wore our sins so that we could wear His righteousness. And righteousness is just His holiness and His purity in the midst of our wrong, He makes us right. Not all the time, I, but that's why we continually keep the relationship fresh, don't we? That's why we need His presence every day because we just walk fresh with Him. Not in condemnation, but realizing that He commends us, that He asks us to keep our relationship pure and sweet between Him and that we can walk every day knowing His strength. It's because of Jesus because of Jesus. And Jesus, um, that faithful week leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, He had a, he had a supper time. He had a, a time with His disciples. They'd eaten the meal already, yet after the meal, Jesus took bread in John, Luke, uh, sorry, Luke 22. He took bread and He gave thanks and He broke it and He gave it to them. And they're probably wondering, what's he doing? We've already eaten, but he was doing something very important. He, it wasn't like it was just part of a meal. That's why we don't have just a meal. We just, it was like after the meal that he broke the bread. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of what? Me. Do what? Well, eat. Or, or, or take that, whatever it may be, and remember what you've, you've done for me what Jesus has done for me. His body was broken. So this little bit of wafer that on the top of this cup is, it's, it's, it's a lot of things. <laughs> it's not tasty, that's for sure. But, but what it is, is a remembrance of what Jesus done for us so that we could be forgiven, so we could walk free, that we could have life. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is this cup and the new covenant or the new promise in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Drink this in remembrance. Maybe the disciples didn't quite understand what Jesus was instigating right there. But I think in time, whether it was a week or a month or whatever, they caught it. They caught it. Jesus died. His blood is metaphoric. His, this cup is like his blood and his, this wafer or this bread is like his body. It was broken. And so today we're going to eat and drink and we're just going to take a moment to thank Him because Jesus ultimately wants your affection. Jesus ultimately wants your allegiance to Him, your exclusive relationship. And He wants, and He, and he just wants you. And through this opportunity, He wants your actions. It'll play out in your actions. And he, He's asking you today, you know, today maybe there's people here today have never responded to Jesus. Maybe you're kind of a believer in Him, but you've never responded. He says, you know, the way to do that is just confession with your mouth and a belief in your heart. 
In other words, something like this. Father, I just thank you for what you did through Jesus. That Jesus, thank you for coming. I receive Jesus into my life. I accept you. I ask you to take away my failings and my guilt and my sin. And I repent of that and turn to you. And I ask you to help me to live for you now in Jesus' name. And if you say that kind of prayer, amen, from your heart, that's the response he's looking for. Because more than words, it's your heart. But it comes out in words, out in actions. And today, we're in a sense doing that as we just come and eat this bread. We're remembering what He's done for us. And we drink of this little cup. So could we stand? And uh, let me just pray as we do this to finish this morning. Father, we thank You for what You've done through Christ. We thank You today that He came, He lived, He he touched many lives, but He left and He sent the Holy Spirit, but He left through a cruel death on a cross. And we would remember that and thank You that that means life for us today. His body that was broken, His blood that was shed. His self-denial meant that we can now have eternity and a promise of hope now and for the future after death in our lives. And we thank You for that today. We rejoice in that. We're thankful. In Jesus' name, amen. How about you take and eat and drink in remembrance of Christ today? Just, just pause for a moment. Stop thinking about what needs to happen next, but just start to think on Him. So this is what it means to cultivate time in His presence. Just thinking, just observing Him, just drawing near to Him, just thanking Him. We thank You, Jesus. We thank You, Jesus. Holy Spirit, you're here. We thank you. What about at this letter today that was written to the church at Ephesus? It's not just a letter to them, but it's a letter to me today and you today. What if we're serving so well and we're bearing up under worldly pressures? And, but has our love for Him taking a backward seat in this this moment may you just start to renew that start to renew it what are the things you did at first just in your own time and own place just say God help me to just restore allow those things to be restored it's your actions that you've got to you do just drawing near to you make a commitment in some way whatever it may be to what can I do because I want to tell you, life goes so much better <laughs> when you put in first. It's amazing. So, Father, I thank you for every person today. I thank you, Father, that you ultimately have a passion for your people in your churches. You showed that to the church of Ephesus because you wanted them to put you first. Help us to do that. We're not quite sure if we're going to get it perfect, but we just need your help to do that. As much as we love spending time with some different people in our lives, maybe in our work we love it, maybe help us to find that love for you, first and foremost. And we just honor you today, what you did for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Come on.
can satisfy. It's honey in the rock. 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 Come on, that's freedom. Freedom with the spirit is bounty. thank you that the reality of you being that incredible foundation in our lives means that we can live better, live well, and live as a testimony and witness of your incredible goodness and love. So we commit ourselves to you today. We thank you for your presence today and opportunity to be together. Amen. Encourage someone today. Uh, why don't you take them to lunch? That'd be great. Have a good day.